Hello, 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 and welcome to the 23rd episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we have to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, today we're going to be talking about a somewhat nagging issue over the past year or so, bike sharing. On the surface, bike sharing seemed like such a fantastic idea. I mean, you find a bike, scan a code of your smartphone, and off you go. Once you're done, simply lock the bike in a public place and lock it for the next user. This, in a nutshell, is what innovation looks like. With the aid of technology, bike sharing took the traditional model of bike rentals and removed its limitations. Since you didn't have to pick up and return the bike to a single location, riders were now liberated in terms of choosing where to go, be it from your house to the bus stop or from the office to the train station. In short, where bike rentals are still the go-to for group gatherings at East Coast Park or Pula Ubin, bike sharing was the ambitious upstart looking to be a permanent transportation alternative in our daily lives. However, what bike sharing actually looked like in reality was surprising to say the least. Where technology provided individuals with newfound liberties at an incredibly low price, individuals took these liberties and abused them. Soon enough, multicolored bicycles were seen strewn all over the painstakingly manicured sidewalks of Singapore. Bike abuse became a thing, with several notable instances being a couple who were photographed throwing O-bikes yes, multiple, into a drain back in November, or the teenage boy who filled himself throwing an ofo down a flight of stairs last June. Moreover, there were also numerous reports of tempered locks, stolen parts, and even one where an ofo was stolen and painted black. The fallout from this was palpable. Several people wrote in to complain about the matter in newspapers, while hundreds more commented about the issue online. Bike-sharing companies came under fire from residents, and the government, trying to act in the citizens' interests, enacted regulations by way of a licensing regime through the newly introduced Parking Places Bill on March 5, 2018. So, where did it all go wrong? How did we get from introducing an exciting new industry, and one that is environmentally friendly as well, I might add, to slapping regulations on these companies? Is this simply a case of punishing companies for not monitoring their bicycles properly? Or should individual users or abusers be held accountable when they park indiscriminately or throw a bike into a drain? In today's episode, we'll be digging through the history and economics of bike sharing to figure out these questions. We'll go into how the industry was first started, the mechanics, incentives, and stakeholders that are involved in the system, as well as how new state regulations play into the situation. Without further ado, let's begin. So, while bike sharing today is associated with the dockless versions recently brought on by Chinese startups such as Mobike or Ofo, the earliest version of the concept actually dates further back. Thanks to a historical compilation by Sarah Goodyear on the website City Lab, we know that the first iteration of bike sharing came from Amsterdam in 1965, when a group of activists introduced the Witfietsen, or white bikes, which were simply dozens of regular bicycles that were painted white and left unlocked for anyone to use. Predictably, many bikes were stolen or damaged, and as a result the program was cancelled and considered a failure. It wasn't until 1995, however, that bike sharing resurfaced, this time in the Danish capital Copenhagen with Bicyklen or City Bikes. This was notable for being the first docked version of bike sharing, where users had to pick up and return bicycles from specific stations throughout the city, and featured a coin system where you had to insert a coin to unlock it, similar to a shopping cart. It doesn't take much imagination to guess how this iteration turned out, and though it was clearly a step up from the white bikes in Amsterdam, theft and vandalism was still rampant. However, 
The dark version of bike sharing didn't die with Bicyclin, and from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s, various tweaked versions began appearing throughout Europe. These include Bikeabout from Portsmouth UK, which was a small student-centric system where users had to swipe a magnetic card to borrow bikes, or Velo à la carte in the French city run, which was the first city-scale bike share program to use magnetic stripe cards and RFID technology. In fact, Singapore actually tried some version of this back in 1999, where you could use your quote smart card to unlock bicycles at docks around HDB areas. By 2008, the idea of dock bike sharing spread from Europe to places such as Washington DC with Smart Bike DC, Montreal with the government-owned company BC, and Hangzhou, China, where the city launched with 2,800 bicycles. By 2015, bike-sharing bicycles would reach an estimated 1 million worldwide, though it was notably dominated by China, where three-quarters of these bicycles reside. Perhaps it is no surprise then that China would be the birthplace of dockless bike-sharing. And while there are numerous dockless bike-share operators in China and Singapore, we will be focusing on the two largest players, Ofo and Mobike, for today's episode. The first to be founded was Ofo in 2014 by co-founder Tai Wei and his fellow undergraduates from the Peking University Cycling Club. In an insightful interview with Channel News Asia's Lin Xueling, Tai Wei revealed that the company's early days were far from rosy. Different problems plagued the business each day, and friends and family were all skeptical of the idea, pointing out that if they put bikes on the streets, they would all be stolen in three days. However, the persistence of Tai Wei and his co-founders have paid off, and Ofo has grown tremendously as a result, and as of the middle of 2017, Ofo has about 10 million bikes in 13 countries, which is remarkable if you recall that the global rideshare figure in 2015 was just 1 million, and is backed by over 1 billion USD in funding from prominent players such as Alibaba and Financial and Didi Chu Singh with the latest funding round raising 866 million USD as recently as of March 13, 2018. With those funds, Taiwei plans to take the company's growth to the next level, targeting 100 million bikes by 2030. Oh, and did I mention that Taiwei is just 26 years old this year? I mean, this is insane, insane stuff. Alright, so from the yellow and black of Ofo, we move to the orange and silver of Mobike, which was co-founded in 2015 by then-auto reporter Hu Weiwei and software engineer Xia Yiping, who is better known as Zhou Xia. The pair first met in 2012 when Hu, who had been a reporter for almost 10 years, requested to interview Xia, who was then working at Ford. Although she eventually stood him up for the interview, they would keep in touch, and in 2016, Hu would convince Xia to switch from cars to bikes, and Mobike was born. During Mobike's growth, Hu would bring in Wang Xiaofeng, or Davis Wang, a former executive at Uber China, to helm the company as CEO. The trio of Mobike leaders was now complete, with Hu Weiwei as president and Zhou Xia as CTO. In terms of funding, it is worth noting that Mobike has a more diverse field of backers as compared to Ofo. Where most of Ofo's funding comes from you know, Chinese companies, Mobike has raised about 940 million USD from the likes of Singapore sovereign state fund Tomasek Holdings, Silicon Valley venture capital company Sequoia Capital, and American private equity firm Warburg Pincus, alongside the big Chinese internet player Tencent Holdings. As of December 2017, Wang notes that Mobike now operates in an estimated 200 cities in 12 countries worldwide including in previously docked bike-sharing cities such as Amsterdam and Washington, D.C. 
Daily ridership is at 30 million rides, and the company has around 200 million total users, with Wang ambitiously targeting 500 million by the first quarter of 2018. Now that we've looked into the history of bike sharing, let's take a closer look at the mechanics of the dockless bike sharing system and how it works. So, how does modern dockless bike sharing work? Well, users download the bike sharing company's app, key in some details to build a profile, find one of their bicycles, scan a QR code or key in a series of numbers located on the body of the bike, and if the bicycle is not broken, the lock at the rear wheel unlocks and the user can now ride the bike. Once the user has reached their destination, they simply park the bike and lock up and confirm that the trip has ended from their app. I mean, simple, right? In terms of how much you pay for using the bike, it tends to be charged by timing brackets. For Ofo, the rate is pegged at $1 per hour with a cap of $2 per trip. It is $0.50 cents per half hour for Mobike and $0.50 cents every 15 minutes for Obike. Note, however, that these companies require an initial de deposit ranging from $39 to $49 before you can start using your bikes. And though that might seem like a steep barrier for initial users, these companies have also provided tons of great promotions and deals to get users to start riding. For instance, I remember during the early stages of when these bikes first came to Singapore, I rarely ever had to pay a single cent on my trips because Obike constantly gave out free rides each week. Even now, I am using the incredible Mobike Pass, which gives me 2 hours of free daily rides for 6 months all at the low cost of just $5. As someone who uses Mobike daily to get from my home to the bus stop 10 minutes away, can you imagine how much money, time, and energy I've saved through this? Of course, all this is possible due to technology. From how the system is dependent on the app for locating and scanning bikes, to how GPS tracks usage and prices accordingly, we have technological innovation to thank for dockless bike sharing and all its fantastic benefits as we know it today. Moreover, it is interesting to see how technology is infused into different parts of the dockless bike sharing business model. For example, on the front page of Ofo Singapore's website, there's a section that displays the anatomy of their bicycle and the different features built in it. There's the GPS-enabled mobile-synced smart lock that I mentioned earlier, which helps Ofo track bicycles throughout Singapore and move them to areas which are in demand. There's the you know, light and durable aluminium body, which allows Ofo to produce bicycles that are low cost and long lasting. There's the solid tires that never deflate, which enable Ofo to reduce maintenance costs and keep up ridership significantly. And there's the LED dynamo headlight that switches on automatically during the night and which keeps up ridership during the later hours of the day. But perhaps what is more fascinating is that Mobike is an even more technologically driven than Ofo. Comparing the two, Ofo can be seen as a sort of cycler-focused business that caters to their needs. You can see this in the technology invested in their bicycles, 
As well as how last June, the company released about 10,000, quote, princess bikes, end quote, to better cater to women. I mean, seriously, click on the link in the description to see it. It is absolutely intriguing. These bikes have leather seats, cane baskets, you know, is lighter and easier to use, and even comes with a semi-enclosed chain box to prevent its rider's skirt or dress from being caught in the chains. Mobike, on the other hand, has a former software engineer at the helm in Zhou Xia, and in fact even brands itself as a technology company, as noted in an article by the Straits Times' Vikram Khanna. Throughout the article, you learn about how Xia first found an opportunity to solve the first and last mile problem of public transportation, and how he used technology to work out the issues faced by earlier docked versions of bike sharing that governments in various cities had tried to introduce. Specifically, Kana pointed out the inconvenience in the docked bike-sharing system itself, how access was limited to users who had special cards, how people often did not know where these docking stations were, and more importantly, how they rarely ever coincided with the user's actual destination. Xia's brilliant plan then was to use apps, GPS, and big data to birth the dockless system in an attempt to overcome these issues. What's interesting is how Xia pushes the technology to another level. You can see this with how Mobike provides ride data to the Singapore government to help them with meeting transportation demand, how they provide the data to Singtel as well to help them figure areas where their connection is weakest, and internally, how they use such data to learn about things such as you know which time of the day bikes are most used, where bikes are in high demand, which routes are the most traveled, and where bikes are eventually parked. In fact, Mobike has created its own artificial intelligence platform called Magic Cube to analyze all of the ride data it gets, which is estimated at a whopping 30 terabytes per day. And mind you, this is just for Singapore. Eventually, the ambitious Xia hopes to combine the experience and knowledge gained from running his bike-sharing business to try and push Mobike towards becoming a rounded transportation service that can meet the various needs of users. As he states, quote, people have different transportation needs depending on the distance. Right now, we're covering 3 to 5 kilometers. How are we going to cover 5 to 8, 8 to 15, 15 to 25, or beyond 25 kilometers? How to meet all these different needs is something we're exploring right now, quote. In the future, Xia has even hinted that this could mean anything from going to electric bikes or even flying cars. Now, the last feature of bike sharing that I want to get into before moving on is the credit rating system. Now, these bike sharing entrepreneurs aren't stupid, and neither are the investors that have pumped in billions of dollars into their business. So naturally, they would have recognized the failures of past bike sharing systems and included some mechanism to prevent theft and abuse. That mechanism is the credit rating system. So how does it work? Well, you can think of this as sort of a behavior score. Each user that signs up on Ofo or Mobike or Obike gets a base level of credit, say, you know, 100, and they'll be deducted for bad behavior such as damaging the bike, parking in the wrong places, you know, etc, etc, or rewarded for good behavior such as reporting damaged bikes or completing a trip without any incident. Over time, if your points are deducted below a certain threshold, you'll be charged higher rates for using the bikes. For example, if you drop below 80 on Mobike, you'll be charged a significant $100 per 30 minutes. If you drop below 60 on Obike, you'll be charged $50 per 15 minutes. And if you go to zero on Ofo, you'll be suspended permanently. Just let me lose it, interest. 
So this last part about the credit rating system forms a nice segue into the next section where we'll be talking about the stakeholders, incentives and problems that lead to the bike sharing mess as we have it in Singapore and many other cities around the world. Because you know, there is nothing special about a bike sharing user or any other person, each is driven to act by the incentives that are laid out in front of them. Which is to say that a narrative that simply squares all the blame on users is, I think, a little bit too simplistic. I mean, take as an example the $3 baller debacle that occurred recently. So Circles SG, which is a telecommunications company here in Singapore, launched a guerrilla marketing campaign in which they set up a vending machine in certain locations where you can exchange $3 in cash for $50 in cash. I mean, it sounds like an amazing deal, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to make $47 just like that? So naturally, when word got around that the vending machine was coming to Raffles Place MRT, the heart of the CBD in Singapore, people flocked in droves to get that free $47. It got so crowded and so rowdy that the whole thing was shut down in less than an hour, and at the end, I think only about a handful of people actually got the $50 from it. So who's to blame here? Certainly it's not just the people who came to get the free money. I mean, yeah sure, they were definitely rowdy and didn't queue properly and whatnot, but who in their right mind wouldn't try to get it? People are competitive individuals. If you don't set boundaries for their behavior, then don't expect good behavior. And this is not like queuing in the food court where there's a social etiquette that chastises queue cutters. This is something that's never been done before. You know, it's not every day that companies come out with promotions to literally hand out free money, right? So in hindsight, if Circles SG wanted an orderly event, they should have set rules or put up cones or signs or something to signal as such. But of course, since this was a marketing campaign, Circles probably did get what they wanted, which was awareness and press. And the best part about it is that they didn't even have to spend that much for it. I mean, only paying out a handful of $50 notes is one thing. The vending machine itself wasn't even a real machine. It was a cardboard box with some guy sitting in it changing the money. Therefore, even though it is absolutely true that, you know, in this instance, there were bad actors that contributed to the problem, it is kind of simplistic to leave the discussion there. Alright, so enough of $3 baller, let's get back to bike sharing. So in terms of the stakeholders, it is clear that there are three parties inherently involved. You have the bike sharing companies, the users, as well as the local government of that area. So the interaction between the company and the users are pre pretty clear. One provides the service and the other uses it for a price. How local governments get involved is a little bit trickier. You see, the stance taken from the Singaporean government when Mobike and Ofo first came was to basically leave them alone. This is as for one thing, the sharing economy is relatively new, and the state wasn't sure as yet if they needed to step in with regulation or indeed how they would even do so. Another reason was that bike sharing brought about a bunch of stuff that governments typically tend to like, including providing a solution for the first and last mile problem to complement public transportation services, reducing congestion, cutting down carbon emissions, and keeping citizens active and healthy. But when users start to leave bikes on grass patches, blocking pathways and in the drains, then the government sees a problem and they can't just sit around anymore which leads to regulations that affect both the users and the bike company. However, there's one crucial aspect that I would not want to miss out here. 
While it might seem so far that the state has only had to come in to correct bad behavior, this masked the fact that the state was lax in setting the boundaries in the first place. So recall how earlier in the $3 baller case, I pointed out that if you want good behavior, then you should set some rules or boundaries to signal it. In this case, if the government expects people to park their bikes in the proper places, then how can users do so when in some instances, such proper places weren't even properly defined or lacked the capacity for the tens of thousands of new bike-sharing bicycles? What I'm talking about here is regarding the parking infrastructure in Singapore. I mean, if Mobike or Ofo could go around Singapore painting yellow boxes by HDBs or bus stops, then I think they would absolutely do it. But of course, since the government has responsibility over that, such action would likely be deemed as vandalism. And the same thing could be said if bike sharing companies were to install bike parking locks beside MRT stations or next to some office building. With that being said, I think we can now dig into the incentives at hand. And note at this point that I'm going to view this through a rational lens, meaning that I assume that each stakeholder is making a rational choice in response to the incentives presented to them. So, Beginning with the government, we've already highlighted their incentive earlier. They welcome bike sharing to Singapore for all the benefits, but don't want to regulate them due to the uncertainty of the new industry. I think this is, you know, somewhat fair. In this way, you actually encourage innovation, and you don't have to preemptively commit resources towards setting up regulations or building infrastructure for something you're not quite sure of yet. However, at the same time recognize that by doing so, the state is implicitly assuming that all the costs of bike sharing would be contained between the users and the company, or, or that in other words, it wouldn't become some sort of public nuisance. Next, we go to the bike sharing companies. Their main incentive, as any business, is to be profitable. What this means in terms of Mobike, Ofo, or Obike is that they want to grow their market share as much as possible so that they can generate profits in the future. They will pump their investors' funds into marketing, hiring staff, manufacturing more bicycles, and improving their product so as to create a better service that will beat their competitors. You've already seen this with Grab and Uber in Singapore, as well as Didi Chusing and Uber in China, and it's a familiar narrative for any new industry. Where this becomes problematic is that their incentives come into conflict with the government, which partly explains the parking problem. You see, there is no reason for these companies to punish some of the problems caused by users. As far as they're concerned, as long as you don't do something seriously bad, such as obstructing traffic, park in a gated community, or destroy the bikes, leaving some bikes haphazardly on a grass patch isn't really worth their time, effort, and resources. And for the most part, the really bad stuff is either punishable through the internal credit rating system or by the police as seen when an OFO reported the teenager who threw their bike down some 30 floors. Indeed, the whole point about a dockless bike sharing system was that you didn't have to park at some specified location. Demanding that users do so or committing the resources towards monitoring haphazard parking is thus antithetical to their goals. So one source of the bike parking problem therefore emerges. The government is too uncertain and somewhat naive about the negative spillover effects of bike sharing, and the companies don't really have it in their interest to monitor or punish bad parking behavior outside of their credit rating system. As such, the necessary infrastructure for bike parking is not built, and bikes are left all over the place. Last but most definitely not least, we turn to the users to see their role in the problem. The main issue here is that rides are too cheap and bad behavior is rarely punished. 
For the first part, you get this from the tons and tons of promotions that the bike sharing companies put out, which encourage more people to download their apps and start riding. If we can consider the bikes in our pavements as some sort of public good, then the effect of cheap rides is to introduce something known as the free rider problem. This is when people get to use a public good without having to pay for it, which leads to abuse or overconsumption at the expense of others. Another way of thinking about it is that if you let just about anyone use your bikes, then don't be too surprised when some don't take very good care of them. Now, this issue is made worse by the fact that the internal rating system which is supposed to help mitigate these problems has one very big flaw, in that it is monitored by users. So think about this, right? If you're out there looking for a bike but found one that doesn't work, what would you do? You just walk away and try another one. I mean, who actually bothers to report damaged or misparked bicycles? In most cases, the only reporting that gets done is by people who take photos and post them online to complain about them. In which case, the actual person who damaged the bike gets away scot-free. This is thus the incentive problem for the users. Bike sharing at the moment is just too cheap, and the credit system is too lax on its monitoring. Unless the bike companies can find a way to tweak these incentives, I don't think the bad behavior is likely to stop anytime soon. We talked about how bike sharing came to be, how it works, as well as the stakeholders and incentives that led to the bike parking problem. What about the solutions then? Well, by way of addressing this issue, the Singapore government has recently tabled regulations through amendments to the Parking Places Bill, which was raised in early March. One major component of this is a new licensing regime, which seeks to control who is allowed to operate and how many bicycles they can have in Singapore based on how well these companies manage the problem of illegal or indiscriminate parking. On top of this, bike-sharing operators will be required to pay a licensing fee, share user ride data with the LTA, including the locations of all their bicycles, as well as remove indiscriminately parked bicycles and punish repeat offenders through temporary bans. On the government's end, they will continue creating new public bike parking spaces where the LTA targets 50,000 more on top of the 174,000 already existing by 2020. Further, the LTA will also be implementing geofencing technology through installing QR codes at each of these areas so that operators can make it such that users have to scan these codes before ending their trip. So, what do we make of these new regulations? In terms of aligning the incentives of users and operators to the behavior that LTA seeks, this will definitely prove to be effective. I mean, as I've mentioned earlier, if you desire a certain behavior, then you have to create the boundaries for it, which is what the LTA have done. Through geofencing technology and the punishment for illegal parking, they have set boundaries and signaled what users should and should not do. At the same time, operators are now tasked with more responsibility to monitor and punish their users in exchange for the license to continue their business, which helps to align their incentives with that of the state. This in a way is typical of the classic solution to the market failure problem of negative externalities. 
When you have an industry that generates problems for third parties not involved in your transactions, then the way to curb these problems is to make these transactions costlier for the user and the service provider. This is called internalizing the cost and is designed to reduce negative externalities by shifting more of the cost to the users and producers. Through the basic economic principle of supply and demand, higher costs means lower demand, and lower demand means less transactions and thus less negative externalities. In the case of bike sharing, cheap rides and lax monitoring have led to the negative externality of littered bikes that affect other people. To reduce this, therefore, operators will have to spend more resources towards monitoring and punishment, and users will have to comply with parking in designated areas, which reduces the benefit and convenience provided by dockless bike sharing. This will undoubtedly make bike sharing less attractive, and as such, there will be less indiscriminate parking. However, I don't think it would be fair to end the discussion right there. You see, in my view, the real problem with bike sharing is not so much the littered bikes and the indiscriminate parking as it is the one-sided view of the issue. I mean, yes, the parking problem is a nuisance, and yes, it does ruin Singapore's meticulously manicured landscape, but that is in no way the only thing that bike sharing provides. Where are all the champions of the environment or of innovation in this discussion? What happened to all the talk of the positive benefits that bike sharing provides? What with its conveniences, the reduction in carbon emissions, the increase in activity and fitness and whatnot? Are these issues not worth considering in this context? It has to be said that the framing in this has been absolutely atrocious. I mean, how much of a problem do we really have? Poorly parked bikes? Bikes blocking your path? Unsightliness? Do these really have a significant effect on your lives? Or are they just mere inconveniences that you can complain about? I'm sorry, but this so-called parking problem really sounds to me like a first world problem. We have companies that are literally handing out free rides and conveniences from their service, and people will still find a way to complain about it. I mean, let's not pretend that indiscriminate parking is a new problem. You can pretty much find bicycles strewn randomly in almost any place in Singapore. But of course, now that you have some bike sharing company coming in with their thousands of bikes, there's someone to point the finger at. And the reason why I am so vexed by this is that these new regulations not only curb bad behavior, but reduce the value of bike sharing as well. I mean, yeah, as I've pointed out earlier, the parking problem will be less pronounced, but that is because there will be less users since it has become costlier and less convenient for them, as well as reduced production from operators due to increased compliance costs. And Tim Fang, who is general manager of Obike Singapore, said as much when he pointed out how the licensing regime, quote, places a heavy burden on startups, which in turn means that bike-sharing users will suffer, end quote. You know, Fang's comments really, really ring true here. Considering that the six or so bike-sharing operators in Singapore have about 100,000 bikes between them, how does a smaller operator such as SG Bike, who has only about 1,500 bicycles, compete? Does SG Bike have the same level of funding and network as O4 or Mobike? Can it keep up with the regulations while simultaneously trying to compete in the market? The most bizarre thing is that Benjamin O, oh, the managing director for SG Bike, has actually come out and said that, quote, we believe that this is a necessary step to help bike sharing grow successfully in Singapore. I mean, come on, Mr. O. Oh. Your company is currently only 1.5% of the market, and because of these licensing regimes, it's going to get even tougher. What are you going to do when O4 or Mobike introduces new technology while you're struggling to pay your licensing fees? Do you really think it's good for the industry that smaller competitors are disproportionately burdened? Do you think that it is good that there are now high barriers to entry for new entrants? On a final note, 
let's not forget the whole purpose behind Ofo or Mobike or the dockless bike sharing model. The whole thing is built around the idea that you don't have to return your bikes to some designated spot, which allows people who use them the freedom to go to many, many more places. If you start enforcing parking spots for these bicycles, you're going to simultaneously hurt the concept at its core, which will thereby reduce its convenience and the value tremendously. So much for growing the industry, you're just going to control it to the point of redundancy. And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. Sorry if I got a little bit too worked up at the end there. If you like this episode, you can help out by sharing and subscribing to the Economical Rice podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And as usual, if you've got feedback, questions, or suggestions for topics, you can reach me at the social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rice podcast, where we're here we have to serve you the grains of capitalism. Mm-hmm.